the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I get excited about Friday. I feel like you're not actually sorry, though. I'm excited about Friday. (laughs) That part, I I do believe. I I don't know a pastor that's as excited about Friday as you are. I love Saturday. Saturday's wonderful. The hard-hitting views from Brian Fromm. <laughs> I love Friday because Saturday is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's coming. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, wherever it is you get your podcast. You can text us, 68683. Just put CG and then your comment, your suggestion, your pun, your anecdote. We'll take it all. And uh, I'd like to start with this story. It's not really a story. It's more of a... Um, it's more of a reflection piece, but the headline mm-hmm. kind of grabbed me, and I think there's some implications both as pastors and as dads, and I mean just as humans. It's from the uh, from the Independent. It says what I've learned as an atheist from dating a devout Christian. Yeah. So I kind of thought, okay, so that I, I I maybe anticipated this to be a little more uh, denigrating of Christianity, but it actually isn't that at all. No. And I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs. Uh, it writes, "I'm an atheist. I have been for as long as I can remember. All my closest friends are atheists." We do atheist things like fear death and worry about the meaninglessness of life. Then about a year ago, something quite unexpected happened. I fell in love with a Christian, a proper one, too. For her, God is as certain as daybreak and nightfall. In the beginning, to quote a certain book, there were there were <laughs> debates, funny. lots of debates. I made the usual arguments from the atheist corner. She countered from the Christian camp. She thought I was naive. I thought she was delusional. We butted heads, and it soon became boring because this was all happening in the first few months of the relationship, the time when you fall madly and completely in love with someone. We wanted to be together, and we knew that. So we stopped the disputes and began working uh, working out around our differences. My girlfriend's faith is an intensely personal thing. It's for her, not for anyone else. She doesn't stand in the town center with placards preaching about hell and damnation, but it is intrinsic to who she is. And he goes on to talk about just how much he fell in love with her while coming to actually really appreciate some of the aspects right. of her faith. He shares how initially when, if he was going through some some heartache or some difficulty, she would say that I'm praying for you as many Christians would. And his initial response was kind of anger. Yeah. But then he, he came to realize like she's offering to do maybe the most intimate thing that she knows to do is, is, is to go before God on his behalf and how, even though he's still very much an atheist, how he really came to appreciate some of the aspects and tenets of her faith, particularly yeah. as they pertain to their relationship. And I just, I, I found this story to be really Interesting, and I don't know. I don't know if you found it to be as interesting as me, or yeah. if there are cautions that you see here, or things that maybe rub you the wrong way. But I, I'll share a little bit more from the story. But I'd love to know your thoughts. Yeah, at f- uh, a couple thoughts. One was it is kind of a cool love story. Like it's two people very, from very different backgrounds, 
obviously at the most foundational level saying like, we're going to work it out. We love each other. Um, and, and that there are pitfalls, but that we're going, but I, I, you know, on the one hand, I find it really inspiring and especially the way he ends up ending it, which I think you're going to get to, I, I find really inspiring. And it's a great picture of what somebody living out their faith day in and day out around with the people closest to them, the effect that it ends up happening over time. The story does not end. Here's spoiler does not end with him. Like, and then I gave my life to Christ. Like he's still an atheist. She's still Christian. Right. Right. Um, but there is some movement. There is some recognition that goes on. So on the one hand, it, that is encouraging. And that is uh, convicting about like the, just the, uh, how Christianity looks different and how living out your faith makes a difference. I got to be honest. So on the other hand, it also raises for me the struggle and the pitfalls of being, as we like to say in the church, right? Unequally yoked in some way of being, you know, an atheist and a Christian being married together at being so different at the most foundational levels. You can also see that as you read this, it's all, it's also like a, in some ways it's also a sad story, <laughs> Uh, I find it at least a little bit of both because like at the most at the deepest level, he talks like we're going to have trouble when we have kids and we're trying to work that out. Uh, and we all have people in our lives. We know people. You might be one of those people who's, you know, you have you're a follower of Jesus. Your 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 spouse is not or something like that. And it's difficult. Like, I don't want to sugarcoat it and be like, oh, what a beautiful love story this is like. Most people I know who don't have that commonality of faith while deeply loving their spouse spouse. It's a difficult I almost said hurdle, but that almost trivializes it. It's it's a mm. difficult part of their relationship, and there's no two ways around that. And so I, I think I feel both of this as you read it. Well written, and and it's impressive, the um, impact she's had on him, and I'm sure he's had on her, uh, but also you can see the difficulty in it. Yeah, he goes on to talk about, I mentioned you know how her offering to pray for him really infuriated him, but he's like, now when she prays for me, I feel warm, I feel supported. I, I know that she's reaching out to me from the deepest part of herself with love and vulnerability. Then he goes on to the Bible and he goes, I have to say, it's full of some good stuff. There's so much fantastic life advice. There isn't an inspirational meme or self-help topic that hasn't been written about and worded better than in the Bible. He's like, I don't buy into all the metaphysical stuff, but my girlfriend quotes passages from the good book itself. And they've led me to some great late night conversations. He goes on and says, she doesn't fear death. She doesn't crumble when people she knows passes away. She cries, of course, but she doesn't fall, fall apart. She feels safe and secure in the knowledge that. They're with God now. I envy that. I'm a mess when it comes to death. I don't cope well. Mm. I fe it feels so final to me. I look at her and long for the comfort she finds in Christ. And then he goes on to say this. You kind of alluded to this. The truth is, I don't know who she'd be without her faith. It informs everything she does. It's in every aspect of her being. It is responsible, at least in part, for creating the woman I love. So for that, I must at the very least be grateful. Now, there will undoubtedly be difficult conversations still to come. Should we have children, for example, I'm not sure how I'll feel watching or teach them to pray, but I'm sure we'll be fine. So long as we heed the advice laid out in Ephesians 4 to be completely humble and gentle, mm -hmm. be patient, bearing with one another in love. Yeah. So it ends kind of hopeful, but I my guess is that you still have some skepticism or, or some doubt or fear, fear or something about this, this yeah. yokeness that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it, they're clearly making it work and in, in, in a good way. And like he, it's having an effect. I would love to read from her perspective. Does she think her husband's or fiance's atheism is, in, is important to who he is? Or does she, is this a really hard part of their relationship for, I don't know. Uh, I, I have no way of knowing that. Um, so yeah, I do think, uh, but I think it's really, it's a, uh, it's also a really cool picture of the effect 
uh, that her faith is having on him and, and the power of, of being committed to each other. And, you know, he's kind of seeing value in her stuff. And I'm sure she respects him and sees value in his beliefs or, or not beliefs. And they talk about them. And I just think, I don't know, never having lived it. So that's the huge caveat here, right? Never having been in a relationship like this. I just got to believe that it's also difficult. Like, it's also hard. But he says that it is. I mean, that's for sure. I would. uh, Can I say this? I feel like it would be more difficult from the side of the Christian. Oh, really? Why do you think that? I'm just saying this off the top of my head. So I'm trying to think this through. Sometimes I put microphones in as well in front of us as we just keep talking. Uh, Because there is a uh, there is uh, because of of what's at stake. Right. Like. there, there's eternity in the balance, right? That's what we talk about with the Bible. So I would think that would make it really hard to be in the most deep relationship you can possibly be with an atheist and have the same perspective that he has where it's hard, but it's okay. It makes him who he is. I think that I would think there instead would be a deeper sense of dread and despair and loss. I could be wrong. I've never been in a relationship like that, but I would have a hard, I have a hard time picturing how that's not part of the conversation. I'd be curious to hear from people even who have maybe been in similar types of situations or, or relationships Mm -hmm. because you would, you didn't quite say it this way, but like this whole article written from the perspective of the atheist recognizes in probably half a dozen ways that for his girlfriend and this, this faith is a part of her. It's Mm -hmm. in fact, the way he says it is it makes her and at least in part the woman that I love. I wonder if she sees his atheism as the same thing yeah. or, or if she sees in fact, atheism as the hurdle, as the thing that hopefully he'll, he'll move past where he's identifying this as central to who she is. Yes. She sees like, man, this is like one maybe shortcoming that will eventually have to get past. And I, yeah, I'm really, really curious how, how those dynamics play out. Absolutely. And uh, maybe, maybe we'll track them, them down one day, That'd get, be fun. get them on the show. That'd, That'd be, be fun. awesome. Well, coming up next, a man named Shane Wood has written a book called Between Two Trees, Our Transformation from Death to Life. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's going to be outstanding. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. He's here, too. You all right? I'm good. I'm about to sneeze. I'm holding the cough button down. I can see it on your face. And then you called me out. (laughs) I'm legitimately concerned as your friend. I want to make sure you're okay. All right. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And uh, one of the things that I love about this show is we get to interview all sorts of interesting people that usually end up reminding me just how not smart I am. Yep. That's typically how this goes. But uh, I'm thrilled to have on the phone Shane Wood, author of Between Two Trees and professor of New Testament Studies and Academic Associate Dean at Ozark Christian College. Shane, welcome to the show, sir. My goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, it is our pleasure. What what I've been doing lately is letting the guests kind of introduce themselves the way that they would like to be introduced. So why don't you first, before we dive into the book, just it doesn't even have to be factual if you don't want it to be. But <laughs> just, just, do whatever you want. Fabricate. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. This is your chance. Unicorn trainer. Yeah, whatever you want to say. But if you would just let our audience know like who you are and what you're passionate about, that'd be great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a dad of four, and I've been married for 17 years. Right on. I get to teach here at Ozark Christian College, and uh, I'm passionate about uh, study. Um, I've got my Ph.D. Uh, from the University of Edinburgh studying the book of Revelation, but uh, not just study for the sake of study, but for how the Bible transforms us. So that's, that's my, my, my deep heart and passion. 
Man, well, we're two pastors, so you're kind of right. speaking our love language. I don't know that if, right. if you've never heard the show, we talk about those ideas a lot. So just first, a 30,000-foot perspective. Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, the, the book begins uh, with an observation that the, the Bible ends the way it begins. Mm. Uh, it ends in a garden uh, with the tree of life. But, but the premise of the book is, is that the problem is, is that we live life between two trees, and, and between these two trees, uh, life is hard. Um, and so the book, the book wrestles with what does it mean to be, uh, to be united with death, and what does that mm. mean uh, for ultimately the solution that we find in Christ, and how do we navigate this world between two trees? And so it, it wrestles with, uh, with things like racism and things like uh, sexual abuse, and I, I, I tell my own story and ask, how does the cross, which is the true tree of life, uh, help navigate in this world between the two trees. I love that imagery. Uh, it's great. I'm just kind of sitting on it here. The two trees, uh, you know, kind of the Reader's Digest version. What is, uh, however much you're willing to share, what is your story and how has your story informed uh, exactly what you were just talking about, the point of this book? Yeah, actually, um, the opening line of chapter seven is, uh, uh, at the age of six, I was molested for the first time. Oh, uh, and, wow. and, and it starts to wrestle with just what is it, what is it like to be a six-year-old and confused and wondering not just how do I deal with this world that seems to be crashing around me, but, but where is Christ in this? And, and then as an adult, how I uh, come to terms with telling my parents about it, but then also come to terms with uh, forgiving the babysitter that, that, that did that mm. uh, to me. Um, and, and how is it that the cross actually uh, calls us to not just um, a talk about getting from earth into heaven, but about how to transform the wounds that we have right now on this earth through Christ's wounds on the cross? Gosh, that's so thank you for sharing that, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, yeah. since you've kind of begun this journey, not only of transformation, but of, of study and of writing, have you come across other people who have said, man, I have a similar story? Like, are, are people resonating with the, the content in their own kind of specific, unique ways? Yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, it's, it's kind of that phenomenon that you see, you know, even with the Me Too movement and things like that. When someone has the courage to say it out loud, it, 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 it's amazing how often people come forward with similar wounds. Uh, and what, one of the things I've actually found in sharing my story more broadly and publicly is that, uh, Satan is not as creative as we give him credit for. <laughs> he uses the same tools to break so many of us. Hmm. Uh, but the beautiful thing about it is that is that God is infinitely creative to meet us each where we're at. And so I've, it's been cool to hear other people um, in their journey and where they're at and how Christ is in, impacting them. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious... Uh, I deal with this a lot as a pastor. So I'm wondering your thoughts on the person who might be thinking, you know what? My journey between these two trees has been pretty easy. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's a, I'm enjoying yeah. it. Uh, what is your word to people like that? Who are like, well, that's not a book for me. Hmm. Uh, life is, life has always been good for me. Yeah. It's one of those things where I'm like, I guess part of the antidote to that, to that type of perspective would be to say, turn on, turn on CNN for 10 minutes. Mm, and, yeah, right. and, and as Christians, we live in a world that, that is constantly manifesting the brokenness from Genesis three. Uh, it is constantly revealing uh, the union with death that creation and, and society has. And, and as Christians, the deeper that we dive into our own story and our own wounds, both what we can see and maybe what we can't see, the more we're going to be able to help uh, the world out there. I, I tell my students here at Ozark all the time, 
uh, you're only going to be able in discipleship, you can only lead people as far as you yourself have gone. Um, And so my challenge to them would be uh, is to uh, is to do what it is that this book did for me. And that's forced me to stare into a mirror. Uh, because whenever I look at the world outside of me, I realize we're not as different as I thought we were yeah. once, I, once I peer deep into my own heart. Gosh, that's so good. Well, one of the things that we didn't mention about your bio is that we should be saying Dr. Shane J. Wood, right? Uh, or a dissertation it's, entitled it's cool, The Alter Imperial Paradigm. In addition, you were named one of Christian Standard's 40 Leaders Under 40 in 2013 and also recognized by Theology Degree Online as one of the 100 remarkable professors and scholars uh, theology students should know about, which... Uh, Congrats. <laughs> yeah, I just, honestly, like truly, truthfully, yeah. I, I just feel great. Uh, grateful for you sharing your time with us now and i'm curious the the specificity of your work do you find that in other academic scholarly circles there is more work being done around this topic or or are you more of a unicorn in that regard like do you find that other people are kind of opening their eyes to the same things that you are yeah i'm 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 hoping uh i mean i can see it emerging in certain faces like a scott mcknight or michael gorman who's whose heart for the academic world is, is just as much as intensely interwoven with the heart for the church. Mm. Um, and I, I, my heart is to truly have the academic world and the church, that bridge to be rebuilt, because we need each other. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that a momentum continues to grow where regardless if you're a PhD or not, your heart is still, especially if you're in theology, it's for the church. Yeah. Let me ask you an almost impossible question because we only have <laughs> cool. like be mostly, <laughs> yeah, mostly no, be, no pressure, <laughs> mostly because of the time. Right. We have like a minute and a half, two minutes left. And you did your dissertation on the book of Revelation. And that book is obviously so often just misread and misused. Yeah. Tell the person out there in the minute and a half. There's here's my impossible question. <laughs> How to handle the book of Revelation? Like, what's one thing you could tell people about the book of Revelation that might help them as they read their Bible and try to listen to all the craziness that people talk about the book of Revelation? Absolutely. No, that's, that's where a lot of my heart is, is to help, to help restore this book that I think has so much to say to our churches today, but gets lost in all kinds of prediction. Yeah. I guess the first thing I would say is uh, don't try to predict with the book of Revelation. Take seriously the first five words of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, what, I've, what I have found, as a matter of fact, uh, between two trees, I write in the introduction that I sat down to write a book on how to read the book of Revelation, mm. and between two trees turned into a book on how the book of Revelation reads us. No and I kidding. think that's the whole point of the book of Revelation, is to unearth in us uh, what it is that Christ is calling us to. Um, now, I do, and this isn't, I hope this doesn't come across as pandering at all, but my website, uh, shanejwood.com, I have hundreds of hours of free lectures on there. I record all my stuff here at Ozark and put it online for free. Um, and so I have hundreds of hours on Revelation there about just of just how to wrestle with this book that longs to transform us. That's awesome. awesome. I'm going to say it again just because I think it's important. ShaneJWood.com. You've been listening to the Right Reverend Dr. Professor (laughs) Admiral (laughs) Shane J. Wood, author of Between Two Trees and Professor of New Testament Studies and Academic Associate Dean at Ozark Christian College. Shane, thank you so much for taking the time. Would you come on the show again sometime? It would be my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. We would love that, man. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Yeah. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're both eating snacks right now. Yeah, so it's uh, dangerous. It's very dangerous. It's not like we have to talk or anything, right? Well, and I'm like, I don't know. You've, you've laughed every time I do this, and I do it like <laughs> so often. We're, we have a snack cart here, and one of the things I have is pretzels. And the worst thing you can eat when you then need to talk is like pretzels or something salty, saltines. And, and I do it every so time, times. right before we go on the air. And then I'm like... Oh, it's so funny. It's, just, it's like that Seinfeld. These pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> I, do, I do want to give a shout out to Debbie, though. She she oh, makes that, yes. that, that. The fact that there's such a glorious. I, we don't want to talk about the snack cart the whole time, but it makes me. It just fills me with joy Sometimes every time I, I see it. I think about it when driving in. Like, I'm hungry. Oh, wait, the snack cart is coming. <laughs> the snack cart I'm is gonna coming. I'm going to eat me some pretzels two seconds before we start Should talking. Should I stop and get something? Oh, wait, no, there's Twix bars there and pretzels. I'm good. I'm no, good. No need for kale salad. Get that out of my life. All right, so uh, here's here's a topic. I don't. Do you like flying? By the way, do you like travel? I do. I love it. I don't fly very much. So a lot. You know, whenever we travel as a family with three kids, we always drive. Like we. Oh, really? We, no, no matter how far. We don't. Yeah, like we. We'll, we'll, the furthest we've gone is Florida. Now we've never gone out west, so I don't know if when that happens, but. Mostly because of cost, right? When your kids, you start to paying for them. That's a very hefty deal. But my kids also love the road trip. And so I do too. And so driving's fun. Now, if we were going to like California or something, uh, now in two weeks, I am flying with my daughter to California for a wedding. So that's going to be fun. So I do like flying, especially uh, when you can just pull up a book and just uh, pull out a book and, and have at it. So, but I'm not like one of these people. You, neither you and I are people who fly a lot. You don't know my life. I do know your I, life. I fly, I fly constantly. Day. I fly overnight. You fly from here back up. That's the right. That's right. I have a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Creflo Dollar. Oh, shoot. Oh, oh boy. No. I went there. Oh, it was Kenneth, the, Copeland. Kenneth Copeland. Right. <laughs> the fact that we can list multiple names yes, <laughs> yes. of preachers with private jets. Like Anywho. Didn't so, the Hybels and McDonald's share a jet? Okay. See, I was trying to steer us away from that. Oh, you brought it up, man. I didn't bring it up. I so. can't wait till the common good jet is made with our faces <laughs> on the tail. Okay, so this show is just Ian Simpkins now. <laughs> Brian's going to hang out with his snacks. Uh, Marcus Brown, our program director, posted this article, and I thought the uh, <laughs> it kind of snagged my attention. The six rules everyone should follow when flying. So everyone's everyone's been on a flight, I'm assuming, at some point in their life, we're like, oh, gosh, I can't believe they did this or they said that or whatever. These six rules... Uh, are pretty fascinating to me because I've never actually really thought about flight etiquette, yep. which is starting to make me wonder if I've um, been the breaker of some of these rules. <laughs> so uh, here's what I do. I'm going to run through a few of them, kind of get your reactions. Yep. But, you know, we've shared this on Facebook. We would love to hear from you. What do you totally disagree with? What would you add? Is there a deeper commentary about how stressed we are about people following plane etiquette? Like, is that maybe an indication that we're all a little stressed out as a people anyway? But uh, number one says shoes. There is a simple rule to flying with shoes. Wear them. (laughs) Do not be a two-year-old who must demonstrate your independence by pulling off your shoes at every opportunity. Yes, on a long flight, feet swell and dress shoes can be uncomfortable. If you feel you must take your shoes off, make sure you're wearing socks and put your shoes back on to move about the cabin. If someone steps on your barefoot, that's your fault. If you use the bathroom on any moving conveyance without shoes, you are a fool. For reasons I should not have to discuss in detail. This is where I show my... my not oh, being oh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, totally the other way. But this is where I showed like that I don't fly very much. Like I read that. I'm like, people take their shoes off and oh, walk around yeah. the cabin Con- constantly. No, no, I don't. I was just surprised that people do constantly. All that right, is number, gross. Number two, reclining. 
If you paid for the seat and it reclines, it is acceptable to recline it. But you can avoid being rude by observing two limitations. First, only recline your seat at cruising altitude. There's no reason to jam your seat back, only to be told repeatedly that it must be upright for takeoff and landing. And if the meal is being served, Mm. good manners suggest not only that you should give the person behind you room to eat, but that you yourself should not dine while reclining. Sitting upright at dinner is as important on a jet as it is in your mother's kitchen. (laughs) Agree or disagree? I agreed. Really? (laughs) I do think the whole, I also don't get the, the, the way they've made airplanes is why do they let those seats recline in the first place? You're, you're like, you barely have any room whatsoever. This is not the angle I thought you were going to And take. then somebody can recline right into your lap. It always struck me as odd, but like they said, if you paid for a seat and it reclines, let into it go. Into your there. lap? What plane? Doesn't it ever feel what? like that? feels like it's right there. What like, planes sudden, are you flying? I told That's... you, not very many. Yeah, uh, but not lap reclining planes. You, I don't mean literally on your lap, but it feels <laughs> like, like they come back and they're like right there. Do you like? Are you pro reclining? Yes, it doesn't bother me at all. Really? Like when you're sitting there and the person in front of you goes as far back as they can, that doesn't bother you? Not an iota. That does bother me. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Number three, we're not going to make it through all these. Uh, clothing. <laughs> Wear it. Wear it. <laughs> That's not what it says. But I need to feel comfortable is the battle cry of the people who think that pajamas or various forms of underwear are acceptable clothing for travel uh, or even for court, but I digress. There are many ways to be comfortable that do not involve sleepwear or gym clothes. I'm not advocating ties and jackets, which were once, what's that? De rigueur? Is that French? I for flying. So. Rather, I am invoking the golden rule. If you have not showered, brushed your teeth, or cleaned your clothes, then would you like to be sitting next to you? As for shorts, no. Would you like to have a stranger's bare legs against you for hours? Of course not. So don't so don't be that person. I will recognize exceptions for Orlando or Hawaii, but that's, that's it. Funny. I think shorts are fine. Of course you do. I we do. know this. I we wear have them. Cargo shorts in particular. But I think the clothing one is 100% right. And can we have a discussion another day about people's propensity to wear pajamas in like every day, like just around? Again, I don't care. I do. It doesn't bother me. I do. But you're not like walking around in a tuxedo. No, I wear a hoodie every day, <laughs> which is practically pajamas. Good it's, point. It's hooded pajamas. Good point. I, <laughs> to everything wrong with our society, people. Uh, what do you think? People walking. I'm looking at you right now. And I'm like, you're wearing cargo shorts and flip flops, and you're like, man, people need to dress nicer. <laughs> Hello, pot. Okay. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number four, baggage. The airlines have surrendered and have ceased to enforce rules about carry-on baggage. I do not advocate for frontier justice, but if you bring on a five-foot duffel bag with cinder blocks, I will take pleasure in seeing your baggage pulled off the plane and checked. I can travel for nearly a week, including business attire, using a carry-on that complies with most airlines' regulations. If you can't leave home without your collection of stuffed animals, perhaps you should consider driving. <laughs> I'm just for the sake of time, I'm going to say true statement. <laughs> I'm starting to really pick up on the uh, the tone of this writer. Yes. Number five, noise. What, if, that he's like 60? <laughs> yeah. If I can hear your music through your earphones, then you should turn it down. And if I can hear you, even though my noise-canceling headphones, even through my noise-canceling headphones, then you should lower your voice. It's perfectly acceptable to tell people that you are on public transportation and that you will call them back later. That I could, of all of these, I couldn't agree with this one more. Really? I will, oh, okay. Man, when people are talking loudly in public places. And I think all people that. need to be way more patient, though, with uh, young parents traveling with young kids. 100%. Right? We've all, yes. Their ears are free. They don't know what's going on. Yes. And people give stare downs to yes. the mom that's trying her best. Calm, calm no. down. Oh, all I'm right. with you on that one. In church and on an airplane. Ooh. 
Ooh, yes. get him, Brian Fromm. Yes. Number six, food. <laughs> if you bring food on a public conveyance, then you owe it to your fellow passengers not to stink up the cabin. This may mean that you will not enjoy your usual heap of General Tso's chicken, but most airports and train stations offer a full array of non-odoriferous... Odoriferous? Odoriferous? Odoriferous food. Without being hyperbolic, I can state that if you bring an entire garlic and anchovy white pizza into a crowded cabin, then you are a bad person. <laughs> You've likely done it as an attention-seeking behavior so that the entire plane will have to contend with whatever childhood traumas made you this way. It's so true. That is good. That is good. Do you know what's more for me than the smell of food? It's listening to other people eat. I oh, there's a term for that, actually. There's a medical term for that. Is there, I can't handle it, man. I, but what would you do if it was like the seat right behind you and they're just a loud chewer? Would I you actually? Would, no, I you, would not do a thing because I'm also now I'm a non-confrontational no, guy. No, you would sit silently for three hours, even though it's driving you crazy. I would put headphones on or something. No, I, just a general rule in life: I cannot stand listening to people eat. And I did once read a study that it said people who can't stand listening to people eat have higher IQ. So I'm going with that one. I'm going with that one. That I, that I mean does surprise me a little bit, but I, I really did think that you actually would. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say. That. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did we get the, the terminology for what it is? If you can't, can you say that word? Misophonia. Misophonia. So I'm a misophoniac. Or phonyist. Okay. I, I don't yeah. I don't yeah, I don't yeah, I don't yeah. know that it matters all that much. I'm I'm admitting to it. Either uh, way, it we'd truth. love to know. Do you agree with that list? Would you take some away? Would you add some? What have been some of your horror experiences while traveling? We would love to hear those comments. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or text us six eight six eight three. Just put C G and then your comment or your story. We would love to hear from you. You've been listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. That was more pleasant than I normally sound. That was pleasant. Yeah, I said, hey, hey, hey everybody, how are you? thanks, thanks for coming on out. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find out more at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And we have on the phone right now Paul Batur, VP of Communications for Focus on the Family. Paul, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back, Ian and Brian. Thanks for having me on. You Absolutely. probably say that to all the hosts. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Paul, you wrote a, a blog recently about uh, pets, and I got to be honest, I are I'm already into this topic. Like my wife and I went on a date a couple months ago, and we were driving back, and I saw a sign for a pet store, and I just looked at her, and she said. Fine. So we pulled over, not to get a pet, by the way, but just to you know play with a pet. I've I've wanted a pet for a long, long time. We have little kids. We don't actually have one, but I'd love to know. First off, why why do you think it's important for kids to have pets in general? Yeah, you know, there, it's a it's a great topic, and I think it's a good question. Um, it depends on uh, the kid, of course, but I think uh, there's so many good reasons to have a pet. I mean, they teach responsibility, they teach empathy, they teach. Um, you know, uh, how to handle difficult situations. Um, they give you a good excuse to get out and exercise. Um, and they even teach uh, kind of how to handle loss because pets don't last forever and they age. And sometimes the hardest thing you have to do is to say goodbye to your pet. Yeah. And any, anyone who's ever had one knows how quickly that bond can form. Uh, but it's it just seems like a rite of passage, you know? I mean, yeah. kids, you, you grow up and uh, just a lot of fun to have them around the house. They diffuse tension. I saw a study the other day that kids who have pets actually have lower blood pressure when they get older. Wow. Which seems, uh, you know, a bit uh, strange, but at the same time, I, th- I think if, you, if a pet or dog has ever made you laugh, 
I guess you could see how that could be the case. Yep. Mm. So I have a little like a uh, 14 pound, like Shishan it's called. And uh, so I am, I am all in on the, uh, on the dog and I the I don't pet. mean to laugh. I'm sorry. But it uh, is. It's, it's like a, well, after she gets her haircut, she looks like a cat. <laughs> just get a cat then. No, no, <laughs> oh, no. My apologies. And so she's the most excited person or, or animal to see me when I get home at, in the evening rather than my children and stuff. And so, but for Paul, somebody like Ian's family, that's got two little kids. When would you tell them, you know what, is there wisdom in getting a pet when kids are young or do you kind of tell people wait till your kids get a little older how do you wrestle with that with the age of children yeah you know there's two things i think you have to get the pet when the parent's ready first and foremost because you know don't get it just for the kids because if you entirely um, depend on the kids to take care of the dog or cat you're going to be sorely disappointed right, right? right. I mean, the, rea- the reality is the parent has to be fully invested as well but i think when the child's old enough to take care uh, to the point of feeding, walking, picking up after the pet. I think that's a good time because it's, again, um, allow them to grow up together, um, gives them a, a companion to play with. Um, and, you know, what a great way to teach responsibility. I mean, we have a, we're kind of on the other end of the spectrum. We have a great Dane. Uh, <laughs> that so that dog would uh, crush Brian's dog. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Although they're super gentle. I mean, you, your audience who have great Danes know they are the massive breed, but yet they're super gentle. Mm-hmm. So yours might, um, you know, oh, give my, ours a run for the money. I'm not sure. Mine will bark at yours a lot, thinking she could. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Delusions of grandeur. Yes. So, Paul, I'm taking notes, and I heard you say uh, only one of the spouses needs to really want a pet. Is that what, or there needs to be, needs to be agreement there? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, okay, so here's what I like about the headline, because it, it says every child needs a pet because every family needs an optimist. Can you talk a little bit more about the Ooh. optimism of a pet and why that's important in a family dynamic? Yeah, you know, you sort of alluded to it. Uh, you know, when you come home, the, the, the animal's happy to see you, and they diffuse tension. They yes. make you laugh. And, uh, you know, I, I love what Andy Rooney, that old guy who used to be on CBS 60 Minutes, he said once that he thought the average uh, pet is uh, nicer than the average person. <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> I know that's a bit of an insult to some people out there, but if the shoe fits, you know, I, yeah. the reality is it's true. I mean, they're when's the last time you came home and every time you came home, your spouse was happy to see you. I mean, at least as happy as a dog. And uh, that's just the the way it goes. Mm. And, and I think it's a lot of fun. And um, again, yeah, the optimism, I've never met a dog. That's really not an optimist. That's so true. My, I've seen cats that are like that, but (laughs) my dog will sit sit in the window. It's like my favorite part of the day when she goes crazy, when she sees me come out of the car and you're like, you're genuinely excited to see me. Right. And, uh, so Paul, you, that's a whole the whole the whole pet the whole dog cat argument is a is a topic for another discussion. But I always <laughs> like what what Paul Harvey said was that to a dog your family, but to a cat your staff. <laughs> that's so good, that's awesome, so true. That's awesome. In your uh, in your article, you talk about all things wise and wonderful. The Lord made them all. Uh, what uh, not to over spiritualize, but what do pets teach us about God? What 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 do they give us a glimpse into God about? Well, I think that, um, you know, that, that, that unconditional love yeah. comes to mind right away. And the fact that they're empathetic um, and they are good companions, that they'll be by your side through thick and thin. Anyone's had a pet who's gone through a difficult time, chances are that pet is happy to stand and sit by your side. And I mm. think the Lord obviously is, is available to us through everything, through all the good times and through all the bad times, and he will not forsake us. Um, you know, you probably can't say that of a pet, but more, more often than not, is that's the case.
So when I was growing up, uh, my parents had a dog when I was really little. And uh, this this poor dog was just terrified of my dad. So every time, no matter what room it was in, whenever my dad entered that room, it would relieve itself immediately. <laughs> and that happened in every room. And my parents were like, okay, this this has to stop. So we gave the dog away. <laughs> so, so dad was gone. <laughs> yeah, so dad's gone and the dog is still with us. Um, so, so the whole rest of my childhood, I was like, can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? The year I moved away for college... They bought a dog, which I, I tried to not take personally. And they're like, well, we finally have space now. Yes. But I will say this, though. So we, we had that dog for a, a while. And um, up until that point, I'd never had to put a dog down. I'd never been a part of that. Yep. And when friends would talk about it, it was like really intense, really visceral. And I remember in the back of my head thinking, wow, they're really reacting pretty intensely to this until we had to put our own dog down. It's terrible. And I legitimately had to like call friends. I'm like, I'm so sorry that I didn't take seriously enough what you were going through. Like, can you talk a little bit more about the intensity of families, like learning a little bit about death th- through the lifespan of our pets? Yeah. You know, you, you, it's sort of a good example of you don't fully understand uh, what someone goes through until you've walked in their shoes. And it, it is true. The pets become part of the family. And obviously at the very end, it's uh, it's like this visceral type of process. I yeah. used to pray that our dog would just die in his sleep mm-hmm. because I didn't want to have to deal with that that moment. But the reality is it's part of the process. It's part of the responsibility put upon a pet owner. And um, it, it does give parents an opportunity to talk about death because hopefully, you know, the kids haven't had to deal with too much loss, maybe a grandparent, um, but sometimes not, not the case. And yet a pet does give that opportunity to talk about the, the uh, you know, the spectrum of life and from birth to death and um, you know, you get into the whole discussion about do pets go to heaven. I always loved what Billy Graham said about that. He said, uh, you know, I think the Lord will have everything in heaven uh, to make me happy. And if it takes my dog being there, hmm. he'll be there. It's a bit no. of a diplomatic answer. Exactly. Uh, it uh, doesn't really answer the question, but it is a, it's a good thought. Yeah, I really like that. Well, if you're just joining us, this has been Paul Batura, VP of Communications for Focus on the Family, and we're talking about the significance of pets in our lives, and I think, honestly, maybe that's why I always had cats growing up, because you, you don't ever really often see them die. They just sort of ride off into the sunset like, uh, like a cowboy, and you never see them again. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today, and just as a reminder, uh, Jim Daly can be heard every day at 11.30 a.m. right here on AM 1160. Coming up next, why do people go to church? This study found that it's actually not the sermon. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with, you guessed it, I'm here. (laughs) I'm here. I feel like you just got called on in class. You're like, I'm here. I'm here. Like they're doing roll. In fact, I had a teacher. This is totally off topic. I want to hear it. In fifth grade, she said the word and really weird. And her and sounded like Ian. <laughs> and I was never paying attention. So I'd be, you know, talking with somebody behind me. And she'd go, 
and and I was all like, what? what? I'm here. I'm, I'm, here. Here. <laughs> I'm listening. My mom's name is Colette. And she said every time they talked about collecting the test, it sounded like Colette and she would freak That's out. Really so funny. Apparently it's genetic. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, wherever you get your podcasts. I wish I wish we had a text line, Brian. We got one. We do now. 68683. <laughs> Type in 68683, type in CG, and then whatever you got for us. Whatever you got for whatever. us. Whatever. And we do mean whatever. That sounded shadier than I <laughs> shadier than I wanted it to sound. Anyway, okay, so here's an example of a headline that bums me out, but is also probably good for our egos. It's, uh, it's, it says, why do people go to church? This study found it's not the sermon. Well... As guys who write sermons <laughs> and preach sermons and preach sermons, yeah, <laughs> and have committed our entire lives to sermons. So it's pretty an interesting article. It's from a website called ProPreacher.com, and they're talking about a recent uh, Pew Research Center poll. So whenever you hear these Pew Research polls, you're like, okay, those are pretty pretty reputable, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and it's a really interesting question. They ask people who went to church at least once or twice a month to rank the reasons they attend as very important, somewhat important, or not important. And 81% indicated that a very important reason they go to church is to, quote, become closer to God. Hmm. 69% said they attend so that their children will have a moral foundation. 68% also go to, quote, make me a better person. The fifth one on the list at 59% said they go because they, quote, find the sermons valuable. Uh, But it says when you do a little bit of digging, when asked to list the single most important reason. So instead of letting them rank or give ideas, you know. Say, oh, all of these are important or whatever. When they say, right. what's the single most important reason? It was not even close. 61% said to, quote, become closer to God. Hmm. Only 8% said, make me a better person. 4% so my children will be, have a, fo- a foundation. Another 4% said they find the sermons valuable. So <laughs> there is the, this uh, this discrepancy here. It's, it's very clear what the number one answer was. It was uh, to get closer to God. Uh, or to become closer to God. And so the question of this article becomes, because it's written to preachers, and the question of this article is, then what does this do for how we orient our preaching, how we orient church in general? And and the author writes this, uh, many sermons focus on moral living and becoming a better person, but that's clearly not the number one need people feel coming to their church. Those things are important, but their primary need is not better behavior, but a better God. Other sermons focus on the vision of the church, challenging people to give their money or future mission. He says that's also important, but their primary need is not a bigger church, but a bigger God. Hmm. Another trend of preaching focuses on greater knowledge of the Bible. This, too, is very good, but their primary need is not more Bible knowledge, but to know the God of the Bible. So here's the question he writes that we must all consider from beginning to end. Where is our church and our church service taking people? And at the end of the article, he says this, don't just give advice. Don't just teach morality. Don't just lecture. Don't just play church, lead people into the presence of God and let God take it from there. And so um, that is inspiring, but also humbling, right? Because quite frankly, getting people closer to God is not necessarily something that we can control. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so I'm curious what you think of these findings and does it have any effect in your mind? If we, if we embrace these, what does it look like for the crafting of sermons? What does it look like for the putting together of services altogether? 
what, what is your reaction to this? My first reaction is that you literally took every quote from this article that I wanted. I'm literally following along, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to say, oh, no, Brian just said it. I said that. <laughs> so for what one. it's worth, two preachers <laughs> yeah. kind of reading through an article, the same stuff spoke to us, which I actually find really interesting because we've both said uh, in different ways on this show how much we love preaching. I, lo- I love preaching. I I never thought that I could love doing something as much as I love doing that. Yeah. And while it is kind of humbling, the <laughs> the low percentage of people that are actually going to church for that reason, to me, exactly what you were saying at the end, right? Don't just give them advice. Don't just teach morality. Don't just lecture. Don't just play church. Lead people into the presence of God yeah. and let God take it from there. That is something that on paper feels so right and so true. And exactly. in practice, is so difficult. So hard. When you're sitting with your laptops with Planning Center open, you're like, okay, and here's where we'll lead them to the presence of God. Like, <laughs> that's the million dollar question mark. Yeah. Like, how, how do we actually do that? And in fact, I think he ends this brilliantly. He says, you won't lead people to God if you haven't been in his presence yourself. Mm. So if your relationship with God is lacking, start there, which... I, that's the, I think that's the right way to end this because we can still read articles like this and come out, whether you're a pastor or a leader or Christ follower, you, it, you can still leave with tactics, right? Like, okay, so now we'd be better at leading in the presence of God yep. for him to end with saying, you can't do any of that though. If, if you aren't first starting and ending every day and obviously none of yep. us are doing this perfectly, but Understood. prioritizing, it's not just about. Oh, you need better font for your PowerPoints. That'll lead people to the presence of God. Or you need to read this commentary instead of that commentary. That'll do it. He's saying, man, if, if you're if you're not swimming in that stream yourself, what makes you think that you'll be equipped to lead people to the presence? And I think uh, for me, it's also very humbling because even when we're not diligent in those areas, God still moves. Absolutely. God still can and absolutely, absolutely does move, which ultimately says for Brian Fromedy and Simpkins, who are preachers who love preaching and love writing sermons, it isn't ultimately about us. Yep. I think that's really good news. Yep. And and I uh, character matters, right? And, and your own relationship with God matters. And in some ways, this is freeing, right? Like it's not all about my sermon or it's not all about doing yeah, specific right. songs that we choose or whatever else it might be. Uh, in other words, it's humbling. In other ways, it's humbling because the presence of God is not something that you can manufacture. And so, you know, it, it raises the bar for the pastor and for the church in terms of prayer and preparation and expectation uh, because you can't be like, man, if I, if I only read, if I, if I give 20 hours to the sermon this week, instead of 15, that's going to usher them into the presence of God. Like that's (laughs) going to get, well, don't you find that sometimes sermons that like you felt like you just had the hardest time actually getting through that following Sunday, you're like, Oh, that's the one that spoke to everybody. (laughs) This is the one I felt terrible about or what are they? I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. I have it all the time. And, uh, (laughs) What it also isn't, you know, you read the headline and you're like, oh, they're just going to bag on the sermon. Like they don't actually bag on the preaching. Not at all. And you got to remember, this is a site called ProPreacher.com. <laughs> right. It, they're not bagging on the on the sermon. They're saying, what's the point of your sermon? Hmm. Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Is it knowledge? Is it uh, behavior modification? Is it information? What is it? And he's trying to point you. This author is trying to point you in a very specific direction. That people are saying, I'm coming to church because I want to know of this God more. I want to yeah. come into the presence of God. Uh, that gives us direction when we're trying to craft these messages, uh, trying to open up God's words. We, we want to say, you know what? My goal as the preacher, my task as the preacher is to open up God's word and, and help people understand the God of the Bible and ultimately to point them to the God of the Bible and then allow him to do the work as opposed to, 
you know, I got to start, finish and close the deal so that they're more, you know, they're a bit more moral person or they're following Jesus better. But that's not my job. My job is to point them to this awe inspiring God and then allow that relationship to do the work. Well, and the other thing that it makes me think of, you read at the very beginning, 81% indicated that a very important reason they go to church is to, quote, become closer to God. And what I want to say to that is that God doesn't live in this building either, right? Absolutely. That you are as close to God as you choose to be. That that uh, One of the things that we've actually started to pray a lot more is, uh, God, open our eyes to the ways that you're already working in our midst, Right. Like what's lacking is not God's awareness. What's lacking is not God's presence. It's often lacking is our awareness. Yes. And I think while I get the sentiment and a lot mm-hmm. of people with very encouraging words will say, oh, man, I, I really need to get here to kind of get my Jesus fixed. Right. Like, I get what you're saying. In. Yeah. You, you have as much to access to God, to Jesus, the Holy Spirit um, at home or in the park as you do here. And I think yeah. it's really, really important that we are gathering weekly together, that we're learning and singing together. I, I, I think it's paramount. But this idea that like you're somehow closer here when you hear a sermon than you right. are when you're doing the dishes or when you're having a meal, like all of all of that is charged with the grandeur of God. And yep. I think as best we can to still elevate the gathered time and say, now go continue living close to Jesus, wherever yeah. you're at, whatever kind of life that you're heading into. And I think that's that's really, really important. Absolutely. Coming up next, uh, here's a headline that I know is going to make you happy. How road trips teach me to trust Jesus. Yes. You and I are actually <laughs> both big road trip fans. So I'm curious where this story is going to go. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is here too. We're holding hands right now. I am here. We are not holding hands. You can't prove that. I I, I can, because people will take my word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's make that a question for uh, all our do listeners. Do you believe me? Who do you trust more? Hmm. I don't actually this. I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm not going to win this. Six eight three. Six eight six eight three. Who you trust more? You can find <laughs> us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or eleven sixty hope dot com. Uh, okay, so we talk a lot about how we want the show to create space for dialogue for disagreement. Uh, that in our confirmation bias, mm-hmm. sometimes we need to look a little deeper. Um, this story is most certainly going to just perpetuate our confirmation bias. Absolutely. Because it's about travel and not just travel. It's about road trips. The headline is how road trips teach me to trust Jesus. To be honest, I read it. And I was like, I'm in. I don't even need to read it. I love road trips. I love Jesus. If somebody's figured out a way to bridge those two together, yep. count count me in. But what? how? I'm curious. How do road trips teach us? Yeah, this is on Christianity Today. I always struggle with that. Christianity Today. (laughs) How were you saying it yesterday or two days ago? I I was trying to say Christianity Today Today. (laughs) Right? Like it was on Christianity Today Today. (laughs) And it sounded like a did-did-did-did, right? Uh, Today Today. (laughs) Hey, if you're out there, try to say it yourself. How would you say that it was on Christianity Today recently? (laughs) I I guess what you would say is today on Christianity Today. That sounds weird, too. It does. Okay. So anyway, uh, this author uh, wrote by the name of Courtney Ellis. She talks about how road trips teach me to trust Jesus. And she begins by talking about how her and her husband, Daryl, uh, they travel very differently. And that's what I thought it was going to end up being about. But it wasn't. Uh, but I, have, I don't know how you and your wife are with travels. My wife and I, early on in marriage, came to realize that we grew up traveling very differently. Like how? Give us a snapshot. So my family would go places and just chill. Like we'd go to the ocean and for seven days, 
You sat on the beach, you no. swam in the ocean, no, you played you. at the house. Nope. It came and went as you, we'd go with another family. So you came and went as you went. The kids would be running around playing while the moms played Scrabble on the beach. There wasn't, there was no schedule, right? Uh, no that schedule. sounds kind of nice, actually. My wife grew up and it was like, we are going to this location <laughs> right. and we're going to this museum and we're going to this. <laughs> we have our, tickets for this and an Uber for that. Right? And, yeah. Our running joke was that they had, uh, they had, they were in somewhere really beautiful and warm and they're, they're. Uh, my father-in-law set up a time for them to go to a fish hatchery. <laughs> so, no. Okay, that's a it's little... our running joke. <laughs> and so Carrie and I, then we get married and we begin to realize, oh, when we go on vacation, we just inherently have different expectations. Sure. Uh, let's just say she's been one over to my side on the just Has chilling. She really? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, but but that's been interesting. But that's not actually what this is about. Instead, she says this, and I love this paragraph. She says, "In my upcoming summer travels, right, we're getting to summer. We go on road trips, and I've told you before, and you t- hinted at this before. I there's not much I like to do more in the world than the, uh, in my dime than." Uh, travel with my family yeah. just road trip last awesome. year we took a three-week driving road trip a couple thousand miles like i just love it like it's it's at the top of my list that's awesome and so she's looking ahead to the summer and and kind of talking about travels and she says this in my upcoming summer travels i want to practice christ-like pilgrimage watching for god as our family journeys looking for opportunities to love those in my path with the love of christ and doing my best to accept discomfort and even disaster as means of discipleship <laughs> and grace i just love that she's going you know what there's things that travel she calls it a theology of travel and there's things that travel can teach me about following jesus right mm-hmm. like we talk about following jesus being a journey we talk about it you know book of hebrews being a run the race and uh, she's saying, I want to I want to take that mindset this year. And like, there's going to be good times and bad. There's going to be we're going to be uncomfortable at times. We're going to have great times. And she's like, I want to learn. I want it to be a means of discipleship. And I thought that was so interesting. She writes, N.T. Wright puts it. A pilgrim is someone who goes on a journey in the hope of encountering God or meeting him in a new way. Yeah. So she's kind of saying, when we go away this summer, I don't want to put my faith kind of on vacation also. Huh. But I want to I want to learn something in just through the discipline of travel, uh, I want to learn something. And she closes by saying this in these pilgrim moment, pilgrimage moments, I'm ever so slowly learning to listen. I'm learning to that the journey provision and destination all belong to God. So, uh, as much as I'm just super excited to travel, I'm doing it some <laughs> in the coming weeks. This was a good reminder that even in something as, as, uh, exciting and as different as traveling that even you could take this kind of pilgrimage uh, mindset right. and say that, you know what, my faith can grow, yep. uh, not even necessarily by reading a book on the beach or doing this. Those are all good stuff. But just in the action of travel, uh, it can do something for my soul. I thought this was a really fascinating article. I'd encourage you to read it at Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> At ChristianityToday.com. Oh, you were, you were so good. Right it. I we had it. Looks I like we can't read it. articles from this website anymore. I know. We're done. We'll just have to say Until from they an, change their an name. undisclosed website. Ah, uh, we'll go with CT. Ooh. Yeah. But you can't type in CT.com, though. Nope, you can't. All right. Well, right after that NT Wright quote, she says, uh, whether we fly across the country or simply drive an hour to visit a friend, travel provides us with a unique opportunity to experience God anew by approaching our journey, not just as travelers, but as pilgrims, people on the lookout for God at work and opportunities to join him. Jesus was the ultimate pilgrim, after all, leaving his heavenly climbs to not only visit with, but live among humanity. He faced all the usual obstacles to comfort that plague us when we travel. 
difficulty in finding food and shelter, misreading the vibe of a particular place, and having to rely on the hospitality and grace of strangers, families, and friends. Foxes have dens, Jesus said, Mm. and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And I will admit, like my wife and I, for our honeymoon, did a road trip. Rather than the 10 days at a beach resort thing, we said, let's go to a different place every single night, which... Did add some stress to the trip, yeah. for sure. But we Where'd rent- you go? We were all across the Northeast Canada. Really? Yeah. It was, we stayed one night in a teepee. We stayed another one at an Airbnb. Time and out. Was a, yeah, true story. Time out. Yep. How does one find a teepee to stay in? Uh, my wife found it, actually, on Airbnb. It was no like a glamour teepee in the middle way. of the woods. With like a fire pit in the middle, and they had like... Uh, the family that owned the property like made us dinner, and they had a, like a little tea kettle thing inside, and it was... Gorgeous. People always assume it was my idea. It was hers. And we rented a car and just drove for like a week and a half. And it was so much fun. And a lot of that, too, a lot of what I feel like she's saying in this story, too, is to have our eyes open in sometimes these, you know, what we classify as these down moments, Uh right? It doesn't have to be just some big family vacation, but like, what about a commute? Do you have a 40 minute commute to work? What would it look like to see God in those moments to redeem that time? The travel time does something to us. And I really like that idea, not just of travelers, but as pilgrims, because pilgrims are headed somewhere. Yeah. Right? Traveling yep. can be aimless. Traveling can be, oh, I'm traveling for work, or I'm traveling for whatever. And I, I, I really do like that idea because you're in new places, which is a lot of why we organized our honeymoon that way. But um, even with all the added stress, like I think we even got, we probably got in like two fights that trip. She's yep. going to kill me for telling everybody that. But it. You assume that doesn't happen on a honeymoon, but it also kind of... It does when you stay in a teepee. Right, right, right. (laughs) But it brought some depth to the trip, too, though. Like, it was really, I don't know, maybe maybe that's insane to say. No, that's awesome. It's so the difference between you and I when we planned our honeymoon. (laughs) We got married in the middle of January in the year 2000, so we're coming up on 20 years, but uh, middle of January. So all that I said when we were planning our honeymoon was, I said... I just want to go somewhere where it's warm enough that I can sit on the beach. Mm. And that's what we went all the way down to Antigua. And, uh, and t- yeah. And so an all inclusive resort, I ate steak for breakfast, steak for lunch, steak for dinner, <laughs> sat on the beach. That sounds pretty great. Watched sunset. So we did not stay in a teepee. But all right, well, you'll appreciate this quote then that uh, comes from Carlo Coretto. Do you know that name? No idea. I don't know what that is, but it's in this the same article. And I think this is this is kind of Brian Fromm in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, that is the truth we must learn through faith to wait on God. And this attitude of mind is not easy. This waiting, this not making plans, this mm. searching the heavens, this being silent is one of the most important things we have to learn. I think of a conversation between Dallas Willard and John Ortberg where John was asking him, what, what do I need to do? And Dallas's advice was you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your that. life for hurry is the great enemy of spiritual growth. Right. And I, I remember the first time I read that, I think that's the great enemy. I don't you remember think how that story continues. Ortberg then no. is like Ortberg said, yeah, I love, I've quoted that so many times. Have you Ortberg then says, okay, I wrote that down and I was waiting for the next one. I said, what's next? <laughs> oh, right. Yes. And Willard goes, that's it. He says, that's it. And Ortberg was like, what? That can't be it. Yeah. And that was it. And I love that. I love that. Quote. And isn't that kind of our instinct yeah. to hear something like that and go, and then what? Yep. And then he's like, no, you're missing the point. Once I'm done resting, then what? <laughs> Which I'm not saying our road trip was somehow sinful either. Like not sometimes it's just the going to things or the planning things. If that's how, you know, that's how you're wired. Yep. But I, for me, one of the great temptations is to always be doing something to see like rest time is wasted time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true. And I want to get better at that. And I think that's the other thing that I love about travel, especially like what you did with a road trip. You're like, Hey, we're all in this car for the next seven hours. Yep. No one's going anywhere. 
how do we redeem this time? How do I get to know my family better? How do I get to know God better yep. and listen to my own heart and all that stuff? I think travel has that really beautiful way of doing that. That's for awesome. Us. I right, can't so, wait to travel this summer. No. Oh man, same here. Okay, so uh, there was a viral LinkedIn post, which I did not know was even a thing. And the headline, uh, I think, was really interesting. It says, the biggest concern for any organization should be when their most passionate people become quiet. That's what we're going to talk about next, coming up on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I don't. I never understand what that music is. It sounds like a melodic velociraptor. You know what this is, right? No. It's right here, right now. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I can sing it for you right now. Yep, please I'm not do. going to. You just said you could, though. I said I could. Yeah, I just, that's I what I said. I didn't say that I would. <sighs> We're off to a strong start here. It's Friday. <laughs> Friday. That's true. That's like our catch-all excuse for you not. You know right now people in their car going, right here, right now. You think so? Or yeah. they're saying, I'm turning this off till that music's not there playing anymore. No other- yeah, I like that song. Oh, I like how it got you to sing I it, though. I want to be <laughs> fell right into my trap, and I regret for laying that trap. Uh, so my name's Ian. The guy singing falsehood over there, his name is Brian. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com, plus wherever it is you get your podcasts. And people actually have been asking me a lot lately, um, when are they posted? So the show is Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m., and usually by 6, 10 p.m., uh, they're available for podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. So if you're listening and that answers a question for you, I hope it does. If it doesn't, where can they find these podcasts wherever they get podcasts anywhere anywhere if you get them at a diner they're there too. find <laughs> under a bridge podcast under a bridge. got it all right but what if they have questions could oh they text us gosh. could they text us their questions i don't know brian <laughs> can they could they tell us 68683 type in cg followed by your question your comment your you joke. really love this text line i do I really do. <laughs> Why don't you read one of our comments from the text line right now real quick? I'm not going to do that. Why wouldn't you do that? Because I'm waiting for good ones to come in. <laughs> if you write good ones, we will and read by them. good ones, he means ones. Um, <laughs> all right. So so I remember the first time I saw this, like, oh, viral LinkedIn post. And I was like, what's a viral LinkedIn post? I, I didn't even know that was a thing. But Are you on LinkedIn? Apparently, I, I mean, I am technically on LinkedIn yeah. in the same way that I still have a Zanga account, but I don't like I don't do anything with it. But. I actually found the article uh, quite good. It, yeah, it's it good. has this uh, this image at the top. It says the biggest concern for any organization should be when their most passionate people become quiet. And uh, later it uses this this Andy Stanley quote that I've used a number of times. It says leaders who don't listen will eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing to say. Mm. And kind of his his point is so often the temptation is especially when you're in leadership. To just surround yourself uh, with people who will agree with you yep. or will be too fearful to disagree with you. And part of the whole point of the article is um, we sometimes overtly and covertly silence the most passionate voices in our organization. And he kind of goes or she kind of goes on to make the case that the, the organization tends to fail when that happens. Yeah. And, and when you, we talked the other day about boss versus leader and all this stuff, and I think. When we when we hang on authority, one of the, I think the hallmarks of uh, of hanging on authority is we're always the ones talking and not listening. Mm. <laughs> we're always telling people what to do, how to do, uh, and like you said, you just become surrounded by uh, by men and women who are just yes men, and they just go and and this picture that this article paints or this post paints about. Uh, a healthy organization being one where there is listening, where there is dialogue, where there is a feedback loop, 
uh, is really powerful. But I guess I'm really curious about how do you grow that within an organization? I guess it's got to start from the top down, just not just saying it, but modeling it. Yeah, not even just modeling it. I think part of it is earning it. I, I think mm. with with this comes a lot of sentiment around loyalty and trust. And I don't think you can just model uh, loyalty and trust. I think you have to earn it. In fact, she goes on to say, uh, your employees are your most valuable asset. Don't take your employees for granted or treat them poorly. Uh, they use your internal tools and systems to interact with customers. They are best brand ambassadors. Yep. And this, this is where it really starts to heat up for me. L- loyalty is a two-way street. You can't buy loyalty, but you can certainly foster and nurture it. Employees who have been pushed to the point where they can, they no longer care will not go the extra mile. They will mm. not take the initiative to solve problems. They'll end up treating customers the same way you treat them. Employees are the heartbeat of the company. And if the hearts, if the heart stops beating, what will happen? Yeah. It's it's that old picture of how do you know that you're a leader? Turn around and see if people are following you. Mm, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we all like to think that we're leaders and we're out front. And then you, a true leader. And this is an obvious statement is being followed by people. People were following them. And the best way to make sure nobody follows you is to be authoritative and always be talking and demanding and telling people at all times what to do and refuse to listen and it's good it's good for you as the leader to be able to take feedback uh they're going <laughs> to your followers your 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 employees are going to be the best people to save you from yourself sometimes she tells the story the author tells the story of her boss being fired he made a mistake on a proposal that cost the company its biggest client this could have easily been avoided if he had just asked for honest input if he mm. had just had a culture where he said hey here's the proposal anybody see anything they, it would have become clear uh, but then, then it goes on to say, listening is the most powerful skill a leader can master, but it requires humility. Yeah. Why do you think humility is so rare in leadership, particularly like in traditional hierarchical top down? Because it, and again, we talked about this a couple of days ago. I think there is a big difference between authoritative and authoritarian. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of organizations require someone to be authoritative. Sometimes someone has to say, hey, I've heard all of your opinions. I have to be the final decision maker. Mm-hmm. Authoritarian, I think, doesn't bother engaging in the conversation in the first place. And right. that's where they, I think, often miss out. Absolutely. And I think it's hard. Humility is hard across the board, right? Like it's a, it's a, de- it, it is, a, I almost called it a skill, but it's more just a trait. It's a difficult trait to have in your life. And once you think you're humble is the time you're not. Mm. And so I think it's a skill though. Yeah. It's a skill. It's a trait. It's all that. I think eventually, uh, you know, a lot of people at the top of organizations are type A personalities. They're driven. They've gotten there and they think they know the best. And so when we think we know the best, th- then we're not going to be very um, compelled to listen to people. Sometimes the best motivation to listen to other people is to realize that even though people might not be, they might be below you in the organizational uh, chart or in the, in the corporate ladder that they know just as much as you and they've got as much to offer. And so therefore uh, it would be foolish not to listen and, yeah. and, and not just as a way to make them feel good, but to go, no, Art, we're going to be better off if I'm, right. if I'm listening to all these people around me. And then exactly what you said, eventually somebody needs to make the, somebody needs to make the choice. Somebody right. needs to step in and say, okay, somebody's got to make the decision here. And it's, it's my role to do that. But man, it's just, it, what, what strikes me in this is it's just self-preservation, even as a leader to listen to the people around you, let alone good practice. Uh, it's the best way to get buy-in, but it's also the best way uh, to give yourself longevity because people are going to buy into you, they're going to trust you, and they're going to want to be around you and work for you. Yeah, that's right. I it, I forgot about this till just now. On, on Wednesday, uh, I made a post 
It's a little, it's a little bit cheesy of a beginning, but uh, I just want to read it and then get your feedback. Uh, I said, since leadership isn't just nine to five, here's some nine to fives of great leadership. Uh, first, nine things great leaders say every day. Uh, number one, this is the situation. Number two, here's the plan. Number three, what do you need? Number four, tell me more. Hmm. Number five, remember our values. Number six, I trust you. Number seven, you can count on me. Number eight, we can do better. Number nine, let's celebrate. Hmm. So I, those are the nine things great leaders say every day. I don't know where that list came from. I don't, yep. Maybe it's just something that I've compiled over the years. And then five, five character tests every great leader passes. One, handling success. Two, being misunderstood. Three, how it's going at home. I think that's critical. Mm. Four, who you are when no one's looking. And five, helping those who can't help you. And I included this Samuel Johnson quote, the true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. Mm. What do you think of that list? I Even though I'm the one that wrote it and I'm looking right at you right now. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I think wherever you took it from was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wrote this. I'm sure you did. I, okay. I know I actually think, I actually think there's a good chance you did. And so... I think that the one that jumped out to me as as you were reading it, I was like, which one, like one of these is going to jump out. And the one that jumped out to me, a leader to, to not just say to the people who work for them or are following them, if you're a coach for a team, whatever it is, whatever it is, the one that jumped out to me that you can't just say, but you've got to not just even model, but you've got to earn the way you said is Mm. the one that jumped out to me is I trust you. Yeah. Right. Is for a leader to be able to look at their people and say, I trust you. And for them to believe it, to be like, Oh "Oh, yeah, my leader does trust me. Therefore I can share what my thoughts or I will go to battle for this person or this as a leader. I can't think of a better thing to hear or as a coach, a coach hearing their players be like, Hey, I trust you. Right. Put me in the right position. I trust you. Oh man, that one, that's the one that just jumped off the page to me. And it's funny, even just hearing you say that too, the other one that maybe I would add to this, but then I wouldn't be able to do the nine to five intro, but I, I would add, I appreciate you because it's the same thing. You could say it all you want, but if they, if your team doesn't actually believe you, it can just become rote. Like, okay, here comes his weekly. I appreciate you email. But if you, if the, if your people don't actually believe you, yeah, um, then it doesn't really do much. And I think ultimately, hopefully, the goal is that we wherever we're at, whatever context, because if you influence anybody at all, as John Maxwell would say, you're a leader. And yeah. that I think our heart and goal is okay. How do we lead like Jesus? Well. Yes. Um, and Jesus didn't run a Fortune 500 company, and he, you know, he, did, he didn't have kids. So there's all these things that we don't know specifically, but to ultimately to pursue humility, to not silence the most passionate voices, but hopefully to recognize creativity does not follow a chain of command, but to, to actually listen, to actually care, and to make sure our teams remember mm-hmm. that we value them, and that it often takes way more encouragement to stick and to counteract negativity and criticism. Yep. Coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with a little interweb insanity, some stuff we found online to land this plane here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone, it's the home stretch. This is it. <laughs> the weekend is here. I feel like home stretch is usually things you talk about like you want to end. Maybe we shouldn't refer to the end of the show as like home stretch, guys. Just stick with us. We're almost done. Six more minutes. <laughs> All right, so here's here's the deal. We usually end every show uh, with just some interweb insanity, and we mention every time the disclaimer, we don't select the stories. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, selects them. He selects the sound effects, and he has graced us with his very... Physical incarnate presence incarnate. right here in the studio. Keith, welcome to the show again. 
Usually I, I'm like down the hall, but yeah. today I'm, I'm going to be You're like right obviously here. He just wants to see him. <laughs> Some of you might recognize Keith from past uh, things like Why Did Titanic Sink and Bieber or Psalm. Yeah, that's, that's quite a resume for the it show is. right now. With very no di- diverse group of, uh, of segments here so far. <laughs> really diversified your portfolio. All right, so uh, Brian Fromm, I'm going to let you kick us off. All right, California. Man arrested for allegedly throwing wrench at driver in apparent road rage incidents. It's like a dodgeball situation. Oh, if you could die. That's what's coming. Yeah. I know it. A man accused of throwing a wrench from his car and breaking another driver's window was arrested Monday. Keith Lewis, 45, was identified as a suspect after deputies reviewed a video. Authorities said the victim observed two vehicles, a red vehicle and a black Toyota Corolla, engaging in a cat and mouse game, passing each other and rapidly applying their brakes. Oh, my gosh. When the victim reached the intersection, the driver of the black Toyota approached from behind, pulled alongside her inside the turn lane and appeared to pull up next to the victim's vehicle, yell an obscenity, roll his window down, and toss a metal object, which was a wrench. You can dodge a wrench. You can dodge a ball. What? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Keith, I'm curious. What comes first, the story or the sound effect idea? Uh, the story. Okay. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So you actually find the story, you're like, that's funny. And then you begin the the hunt for a sound effect that Cor- fits. Correct. For, first, it's, okay, what Simpsons drop can I use? <laughs> yeah, right. Then, then I, I worked we worked from, from there. there. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. All right. Oregon, uh, FBI releases Bigfoot file from the 1970s. The federal Ooh. government took rare action this week on a subject that's typically relegated mostly to internet forums and conspiracy circles. The existence of Bigfoot. The Federal Bureau of Investigation on Wednesday released a cachet of files relating to investigatory documents for the creature, also known as Sasquatch, from the 1970s. They document the FBI's testing more than a dozen suspect hairs in 1976 at the request of Oregon resident and Bigfoot investigator Peter Byrne. Will somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way? Nice. <laughs> That's pretty. I would love to actually see those files. Is yeah. that, does that make me a nerd? Nope. Officially? A yeah. yeah. Brian says no. Nope. Keith says a little bit. Indiana. Deer breakthrough retirement apartment window. I mean, oh. sure. Why not? Police in Decatur had to tranquilize two of three deer. Not the other one, though. They, that, the third one was just uh, was playing along well. He was already drunk. That's why. <laughs> it crashed through the window of an apartment at a retirement community while a woman was inside. Uh, officers from the Decatur Public uh, Police Department uh, came to the retirement community around 9.30 Tuesday night. A woman was sitting in her living room when three deer jumped through the apartment bedroom window. Huh. Uh, the deputy went into the apartment. He saw the woman inside sitting on a couch with one of the deer jumping around her in the living room. The officer shielded the woman until it was safe for her to exit the home. At one point, two of the deer went into the bathroom of the apartment. Two of the deer had to be tranquilized and removed. They were taken outside. The third deer just jumped back through the window and ran away. Oh! A deer! A female deer. <laughs> Said Simpsons episode. What are the odds she yelled, oh dear, when this happened? Uh, probably not. I hope good. so. You, I do too. If there, Well, that seems like a weird thing to hope. Oh. All right. Our beloved Florida. Man found with unopened bottle of wine in his pants. I feel like I should bail on this story Don't right now. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Can your pants double as a wine cellar? In the case of Sebastian, Florida man, the answer apparently is yes, according to an Indian River County Sheriff's Office report. <laughs> a deputy on May 26 went to call, a, call in Sebastian for a suspicious person and found John Martin, 66, on the grass. Martin, who smelled the booze, said he was resting on his way to check his car in a grocery store parking lot. A deputy, uh, deputy off, offered Martin a ride, noting he didn't appear to, quote, be able to drive in his current state. Have you been drinking? I'm not drunk. 
<laughs> I like too. The story goes on to mention Pinot Grigio typically is a light, refreshing white wine. The grapes of which are grayish purple and mostly grown in the north in northeast Italy. Like, thanks for Thank the, uh, the, mini, the mini wine lesson. <laughs> Thank you. Last one, Indiana. Indiana company sparks outrage with unscented Ohio candle. Uh, An Indiana company is raising the ire of its neighbors in the Buckeye State with its marketing of an unscented Ohio candle with the description, not much to see, not much to do. (laughs) Cleveland.com reports Ohio State Tourism Agency took burnt umbrage at the description. They came up with a list of Ohio scents that people might enjoy, including summer breezes, wild hyacinth. And other simple nature owner says he's a one person company acknowledge he might be projecting his quote insecurities of being a Hoosier on Ohio. <laughs> Fun times in Cleveland. Oh, I love this song. Come on down to Cleveland Town, everyone. Under construction since 1868. See our river that catches on fire. See the sun almost three times a year. The flats look like a Scooby-Doo ghost town. Don't slow down in East Cleveland or you'll die. Our economy's based on LeBron James. Buy a house for the price of a VCR. Our main export is crippling depression. It could be worse, though at least we're not Detroit. Oh, the we're not Detroit. Detroit. Yeah, <laughs> we're not Detroit. <laughs> Never a dull moment. I, in fact, I actually really appreciate that. That job. was good, Keith. That, that well one, done. Well done. That one. I mean, Michigan was that still from the is. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Michigan still America's high five. Keith Conrad, thank you so much for joining us today. On Have the a great common weekend. good. See you next week, everybody. On the common good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.